When the bombs went off at the Boston Marathon, highly trained dogs were rushed to the scene to search for more explosives. Since 9-11, dogs have been used more than ever because nothing has proven more effective against hidden bombs than the nose of a working dog. The best of them serve with U.S. Special Operations and they're in a league of their own. In Afghanistan, there have been 42 dogs killed in action and when they're wounded in combat, they get the same care as any soldier. And when these dogs retire from special operations, some of them, like Rex, Dwayne Khan's dog, find jobs with law enforcement. Now to more on that hero dog that helped take down the leader of ISIS. Part of an elite group of canines trained in secret from a very young age to complete dangerous tasks that only can be done by man's best friend. From every branch of the military, some of those dogs in special operations units working to complete some very dangerous missions. Secret mission in Syria to find the world's most wanted terrorist had this dog by their side, a Belgian Malinois. We don't know its identity. We're not releasing the name of the dog right now. But we do know it is special and being called a hero in the military operation that ended in the death of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. A military working dog. Uh, performed a, a tremendous service, as they all do, in, in a variety of situations. The president tweeting this picture Monday. White House officials tell him the dog will likely get an official invite to visit the White House. Military working dogs with special operation units are capable of doing more than the average military working dog. These are dogs that parachute out of military aircraft, many of them equipped with goggles, infrared mounted live cameras, waterproof body gear that can be resistant to bullets, shrapnel and knife attacks. And the dog used in Sunday's raid isn't the first Belgian Malinois to take part in a large scale terrorist operation. In 2011, Cairo, the same breed, worked with the Navy's SEAL team to find and kill Al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. His service immortalized on the silver screen in the film Zero Dark Thirty. These military working dogs proving to be more than just man's best friend. And while the Pentagon says the canine commando from this past weekend's raid was slightly injured by the blast, the dog is back at work in the region with its handler. This dog's so smart. And, and usually these dogs are seen as force multipliers because their senses are, are much more sensitive. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. We have a special episode for you guys this week. My guest is uh, Bill Clark. Uh, he served in the Marine Corps and the U.S. Navy for a long time uh, as a dog handler, and he'd done some cool stuff in his career. So uh, thank you for coming on here, brother. No, thank you for having me, friend. I appreciate it. All right, so let's start with... Um, what motivated you to join the Marine Corps? So there's a lot behind that. So my family is big in the military. My mom was in the Army, and she was one of the first women to be allowed into uh, airborne school. So, you know, she earned her jump wings. My father uh, was in Vietnam for three years in the Marine Corps as a door gunner in Huey's. Uh, and then after the Marine Corps, he switched over to the Army and did 24 more years uh, and retired a, a command sergeant major. 
Um, so, and my grandfather was in Korea. I mean, most of my aunts and uncles all served. So the service in my family goes back, you know, generations and generations. So, but what really pushed myself to doing it is that uh, I played uh, football through high school and middle school. I was one of the very few guys that as a freshman um, made high school varsity. So I knew that that was my calling as far as getting into college was going to be athletic. So I, you know, I played running back, I played corner and all that stuff. And I got, was pretty highly recruited. And then my senior year, I tore my hamstring out and I pretty much lost all of my, you know, my looks, my scholarships. And no one was really interested anymore because being five foot seven, you know, the main thing they look at is your speed. And, and I had lost a little bit of that with the tore hamstring. So, um, I still had some talks with Eastern Washington University, which is the college, a Division One AA college that I ended up playing for anyways. But I needed some time to heal. So I thought to myself, why don't I join the Marine Corps um, Reserves and get back into that? And then once I come back, they'll pay for a portion of my school that won't be covered possibly in my scholarship, right? So and my coach over there had told me his name is Paul Wolf and I think he he was a coach for you know Eastern and then Washington State and then he was a, a partial coach on on San Francisco 49ers throughout his career. Good good guy. He was like, hey, just go off, do that, come back, you'll come walk on, and I'll give you a scholarship. So that's what I did. Join nice. the Marine Corps. Uh, yeah, join the Marine Corps as a 2531. I think it's now changed the MOS code for that, but that's a field radio operator. Was attached to a reserve unit out of Yakima, Washington, which is the Fourth Marines Tank Battalion. And then attended college at uh, Eastern Washington University in Cheney, Washington, right outside Spokane. Played three, two, two and a half, three years there um, and played well. I mean, I had a stud in front of me. His name was Alvin Tolliver. We both played strong. I got moved to strong safety when I got to college. So Alvin started ahead of me my first two years. And then I got quite a bit of playing time my, my junior year because he had moved on and, and went and played Canadian. So. So, yeah, I had a stud uh, in front of me, so but did get quite a bit of playing time. And then September 11th happened, and I was sitting in my in my house right there at college. I was living with three roommates. Um, two played football. One played um, on the golf team for the university. And then uh, that happened, and it kicked off. And I knew, hey, they're going to they're gonna send me, since I'm a reservist, they're going to activate me, you know, and put me in into something that I don't want to do as a radio operator because I hated my job as a radio operator. It was so boring. Installing tanks into or radios, excuse me, into tanks and Humvees and and setting up, you know, radio sites in a bivouac or something like that and, and basically being, you know, someone that the CEO just sits there and talks to you and you repeat what he says. It wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to fight and I knew that that's not what I wanted to do. So um, instead of letting the Marine Corps wait to activate me. I just went to the recruiter. So I talked to the Marine Corps recruiter, um, said, Hey, I want to switch my MOS if possible and then go active to military police so I could touch dogs. Dogs have been a huge part of my life. And the only way you can be a handler within any branch of service uh, is to be a military police officer because that's where the dogs, you know, that's where they go. So he said, nope, we're out, we're overmanned in the Marine Corps Police Department. You can come in or, you know, MPs, you can come in, but you're going to go as a field radio operator. I said, negative. <laughs> so walked over to the Army recruiter after that and then said, uh, you know, took a look at Ranger School and all that other stuff. Uh, and they said, hey, so to become a Ranger, you got to go to our infantry school, you know, because that's where the Rangers recruit from. And I was like, why am I going to go through your infantry school? Number one, it's shorter than the Marine Corps. And I went through the Marine Corps, which is six months long. Um, 
had some talks with my father, like I said, a Vietnam vet, longtime Army and Marine Corps guy. And he's like, do not go to the Army. They don't treat their people with any kind of, you know, respect. They, they treat them like crap. You get low doll, bottom dollar gear. Just don't do it. Don't go back to the Marine Corps either. My suggestion is go to the Navy or the Air Force. So I was like, all right. Walked over to the Navy guy. And he's like, hey, yeah, we'll let you be a dog handler. Um, and we'll give you eight grand because your prior service, whether you're reservist or not, your prior service. So I said, Roger that. And then in the next following week, I shipped off. I was gone and and went to, uh, you know, didn't go to boot camp because if you go through the Marine Corps basic training, you don't have to go to any other branches uh, due to the length of the Marine Corps is much longer and more in depth. So went to uh, what they call TPU, transferring personnel unit. Did all that fun stuff, learned the Navy jargon, which is the same as the Marine Corps. So it wasn't that difficult. And then went to master at arms, which that's what they call military police officers in the Navy, which takes place in San Antonio. And so does dog school. So they told me if I finished top of my class in my in my police academy that I could pick follow on orders. So that's what I shot for. Did that finished top of my class. And then I think I was the first E3 to ever go through Navy dog handling school because previously before the war, you obviously had to be an E5 with some time under your belt to, to pick up a dog. They didn't just let anybody pick up a dog. Uh, but with the war kicking off and me having prior service, the program manager who later became a great friend of mine, his name is Scott Thompson, uh, allowed me to attend military working dog school. And then off to Italy, I went. And what year was this? So this was 2001, 2002. I finally went to, after all my schools, I finally was uh, sent off to Sigonella, Sicily, which is the island off the bottom portion of um, Italy right there. So we have a, a naval air station there, and that's where I was assigned to my first um, police unit and my first military working dog. Uh, that's a nice place to uh, to be assigned to. Yeah, it's beautiful, but it's funny. I didn't know where Sigonella was. I didn't even know what it was. And then my detailer, who, again, is a very close friend of mine and the very first kennel master uh, at Naval Special Warfare Development Group later on down the road, who helped create the program as well, Joe Burpo, uh, was my detailer. And he's like, I'm sending you to this large kennel because that's where the most diversity is, and that's where you really learn. If you go to a small kennel, you know, you're only working with two or three handlers. There's not a lot of different information exchange, so you don't really learn as much. So he sent me to the second largest kennel in the Navy, and I was kind of pissed off at him, and I didn't know him back then. And later on, he became one of my closest friends and still is to this day. So while you were stationed at, at Sigonella, uh, you were attached to the Navy Special Mission Unit uh, for an Afghanistan deployment. Uh, can you talk about your initial experience working with those guys? And uh, do you remember oh. the, the first time you were in a gunfight? Yeah, so um, that was 2002. Literally, I hadn't even been on board maybe a year. And then when you're on board, um, a military police officer, as a canine handler, you go through a yearly inspection. And most military units within the Navy go through an inspection, whether it's aviation, whether it's a ship, or whether it's a, a, you know, a, land, a land-based unit like a police department. But kennels are the same way. We have our own yearly inspection, and they call it STAT. Um, and I happened to go through STAT, through Sigonilla, and I finished number one bomb dog in all of Europe. And this was 2002. So they basically go through all the kennels in Europe, and then they rank handlers based off of you know, how well they performed with their dog as a team, as a group. So I had a straight bomb dog at the time. His name was Twain. He's a little chocolate lab. 
and I ended up getting top bomb dog in Europe. So the program manager, again, at the time, same guy, Scott Thompson, got hit up by uh, a SEAL master chief at NSW, at Dev Group over there, and said, hey, we're starting a program. We would like to get you guys' top handlers over here. So that's what happened. So I got they asked me if I was interested. I didn't know what Naval Special Warfare Development Group was. I never heard of them. I didn't know what intended, what it, you know, what all – was going to come out of it. I had no clue. So I went up, took a phone call on a secret phone and he introduced himself, said, Hey, this is what we're doing. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, for sure. I'm interested. Again, going back to that time, I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids. I was 23, 24 years old. Um, that's all I wanted to do was get it, get into the war. Just, just get out there and do my part and feel like I was doing something, uh, that was worthy. You know what I mean? So they sent me over to Virginia Beach. I did my screening with those guys. It, it turned out well, and that master chief told me, he's like, hey, you're not going back to Siganella. We're going to send you on deployment. I had no clue that I was getting ready to go on deployment right after my screening. So that's what they did. They called my command and said in Siganella and said, hey, you know, I was at E5 and MA2 at the time. They're like, MA2 is going to go on a deployment uh, with us, and then we'll send them back to you when he comes back. So that's what I did. I went to Afghanistan 0203, um, OEF-1. Uh, and did roughly four months out there with 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 them, um, and just th- that was a real trying time for dogs back then because dogs had never been introduced into um, development group ever. I mean, the last time that the teams had any kind of a dog program was Vietnam, and then after Vietnam, the program went away because, like any major program like that, if there's not a war, it's hard to sustain it. So, dog program went away after Vietnam. That master chief, SEAL master chief that I spoke about, he he was tasked with starting the kennel again. And and again, they 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 liked my work. I went out there and did a good good deployment with those guys. Um, it was different, like I said, just due to the fact that no one really knew how to use them. So a lot of the times, they would just we would be in a convoy and we would go to do a hit or whatever it may be, and they would leave us in the back of the vehicle or, or have vehicle security until they needed us. But they didn't really know how to employ us. So we didn't get a lot of work back then. So that deployment was fun no matter what. It was in the winter, and it was a great time, but I didn't get a lot of experience then. So came back from that deployment. They still didn't have the billets for the dog handlers uh, for Dev Group yet because it was, it was a brand-new program. So um, I couldn't stay on full-time just due to that fact. There was no billets. So um, they did bring the kennel master on board, Joe Burpo, uh, and a few handlers that were local. Um, they brought them on board, and then – I had to wait until they actually got more dog handler billets, um, and then that master chief again called me and said, "Hey, well, they want the you know the guys really like you. They want to bring you back full time. Are you interested?" And at this time, I had already transferred. I went back to Signella, um, and I got to Signella, and immediately three months later, there was a deployment opening into uh, Baghdad, Iraq, with an anti-terrorism battalion that was created for the Marine Corps. Uh, and it, it was short-lived, uh, short-lived creation. That battalion only lasted like one year, and then they disbanded it. But so I was, I was pushed to that unit. I volunteered to go. I had to sit with my CO to get approval because typically you have to have a year gap in between your deployments because they just don't want to burn guys out. At least back then, because it was the early day. I think as as the war went on, they didn't care so much. But um, so I just sit with my commanding officer of the base and say, "Hey, sir, I'm good to go." Blah blah blah. Did that. They allowed me to go. Went into country uh, and did a lot of work, a lot of foot patrols into, into the red zone. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, a couple of guys got hit by sniper fire and stuff like that. It's real, real dirty. 
Uh, but it was it was a great it was a great experience for me. Again, more experience working a dog in that hostile situation. That was where I really got into my very first big gunfight. Uh, was with the Marine Corps in the invasion of, of Iraq. So a lot of good work uh, with the dog too. A lot of weapons found stuff like that. Really good time. So good guys with me as well. We had six other Navy handlers attached to us. We were all attached to the Marine Corps unit. Uh, and, and had a great time. So came back from there and it was time for me to roll. So I really didn't spend much time in Sicily. So maybe a year and a half total of the time I was there was actually in there. So, um, But then uh, I was recruited by the uh, kennel master of the Navy's largest kennel. Uh, you may have heard of him as well, Mike Toussaint, who uh, you know I later brought over to NSWDG. Um, he recruited me to go be a trainer over there. And I went over there and did about eight months on board. And that's when uh, Damn Nick got their uh, our Dev Group got their um, their billets for their dog handlers, and and then they asked me to come back, and so I came back. So I wanted to ask you mentioned um, how you had a a bomb dog bomb detection dog on your first deployment to Afghanistan. Um, so no, I, I take that back. So I did have a bomb dog de- uh, previously before being selected for that deployment, but okay, when okay. I got assigned to that deployment they say we don't need a bomb dog we need a bite dog so we had a back then the navy used to have straight bite dogs and straight bomb dogs now they don't have that they only have dual purpose dogs so it's either a drug bite dog or a bomb bite dog so but back then my kennel signal sicily had a um straight bite dog and his name was aaron and he was a little uh not a little probably a 75 pound shepherd so I got assigned to him for that specific deployment. So my okay. primary mission on that deployment was uh, hidden personnel, hidden enemy personnel. So I wanted to ask, because you, you've been at it a long time. So, uh, you know, obviously over time, these, uh, you know, these skill sets get refined and stuff like that. Um, how different was it running the dog on that first deployment versus running the dog on, say, your last deployment? much 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 uh more different so again like i said in the first deployment no one really knew how to utilize the dog or what that asset could bring to the battlefield so my when i came back and did my first deployment coming back that's when people started there's this 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 great handler and he owns a i'm gonna put a put us you know a thing out there for him but he runs spikes um foundation his name is jimmy hatch he's a retired seal senior chief who really got involved with the dogs down there um, and took it to another level. He was the one, it took a, you know, a team guy to really push the dogs in the train and get them at the front of the train and get good work in and have them going into the buildings before the guys and finding bad guys or, or hidden explosives in the thing. So with Jimmy there uh, down in the kennels with us, it really, it really set us up for success a lot. So, you know, Jimmy and, and another, uh, team guy that's a really good friend of mine. I won't say his name because he's active still, but he, those two guys really were, were in my mind responsible for pushing the dogs within the assault squadrons to get them way ahead of the patrol, leading the patrol in, going in with primary assault. And then over time, over my first deployment, second deployment, the dogs were saving lives left and right. So then guys really, really realized, Hey, this, this animal is a huge asset. Not only is he an asset, but he's like a teammate. We don't we don't think of him any different. So then kind of, you know, special operations canines really took off from there. I mean, we were we were almost so busy 
as a handler on target, sometimes you have to say, hey, time out. I, I got to give this dog some water. I got to give him some rest. He's exhausted. You know what I mean? He's he's out there finding guys left and right. He's finding explosives. And you can see physically that the animal's getting tired. So you have right. to have the common sense to tell guys because they're begging for that dog. They're like, dog, 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 dog. And they're like, hey, guys, I got to give him some time, man. And, you know, that's kind of difficult to do as someone who's a master at arms and not a SEAL. But over time, you build those relationships with those guys. And I'm sure you've heard it time and time again. The relationships that guys have on the battlefield is is, is unexplainable. But you build those relationships and become so strong that guys, you know, they listen to you. They know you're the, you know, the resident expert when it comes to that dog. And you're not going to put that dog in a situation that's going to harm, harm itself or possibly get killed. So, yeah completely night and day from going to something that no one really know how to utilize till being um, to being almost overutilized on target. Yeah. And, and even like having conversations with guys who were in special operations um, and were not dog handlers. A lot of those guys have stories of, um, of dogs really saving lives and, and making a difference on a target. Um, are you able to share a story of a time where a, a dog saved somebody's life? Yeah, so I'll use uh, one of mine for an example because I don't want to put anybody else out there. So we did a, a target in 2007, uh, southern Afghanistan, southern Afghanistan, outside of Kandahar. It was winter. It was cold. Uh, we landed on the X, the X meaning about seven to 500 meters away from the target. And as soon as we landed, we're starting taking the ramp is already down. We're taking, uh, you know, effective fire uh, on the ramp from a building top by two two bad guys. So we all get out of the helo as fast as we can, get on a firing line and, and uh, you know, return fire and do what we can. And then my team leader, God rest his soul, is now he passed away the next deployment, unfortunately, um, says, Billy, I need that dog in that building. So from about I would say we bumped up and we got to about 100 yards away. Um, I used my visible laser and lased the front door and sent my dog at the time. So I can tell you the dog's name because he's since passed away as well. His name is Axe. So Axe went into the building, and we have an IR strobe on his back so that we can see him through nods. And he goes into the front door. Uh, me and my, my number two and that team right there uh, bumped up to the door. And I could see that the light wasn't moving. It was still. So I'm like, he's he's probably laying down showing there's explosives somewhere. So sure enough. He's laying there, and in the rugs, two rolled-up rugs are two fully loaded PKMs, right? So we find those, and then we're, we're moving throughout this. It turns into pretty much a village assault, vice a compound assault, because guys are moving all over the place. So, you know, the eyes in the sky tell us, hey, you got movers all over the place. So we're like, all right. So we're moving. We go to an, we get to another compound. There's a little animal door. And then my number two guy, again, uh, who's a great guy, a good friend of mine as well, He's like, hey, Billy, give me my uh, bolt cutters and because there was a little animal door there. It had a lock and some chains on it. So I hand, take him off his pack. I hand him to him. He breaks in. He's like, send him in. So I send him in. He goes in. Back then, we didn't have cameras yet for the dogs, right? Obviously, it's no now that our dogs have cameras on their back. So I'm not giving anything out there that people don't know. So no cameras. So he really had to watch the light on his back to see kind of what was going on. So he goes up, and there's these, this small building with two doors. He goes in the first door, and then you can see that he's jumping around in there. So me and the number two move up. We corner each door, um, getting ready for clearance. And we can see that there's two dudes in there, with both with AK-47s. And the dog is so smart. Axe was so smart that he was jumping from bad guy to bad guy, keeping them busy, keeping them both busy. 
almost like he was protected so he knew he wouldn't get shot by biting one and letting go and biting the other or he was just having a good time because to the animals it's all fun and games they don't right. know the life threatening you know so it's just a fun time for them so he's bouncing back and forth between the two guys and me and the number two guy uh, eliminate those guys and then we go to the next door and thank god uh axe just happened to know that it was full of women and kids so he did not go in there and that's we don't teach them that we teach them scent so they go in there, they find the scent, they bite it. We don't teach them to, you know, pick whether it's women, children, men, whatever. We just teach them scent. So the fact that he kind of understood that that room wasn't a threat will give you a good idea of how smart these animals are. So we clear that room, no big deal. No one gets hurt. Um, lace up, axe, move again. We're moving again, and then um, there's another guy in a garden area, right? So. He's hiding. He's hiding underneath blankets and pillowcases, trying to hide from ISR and from the heat uh, sensors and all the other stuff. But it's like negative three degrees. You're not going to hide from it. Your body temperature is going to show. So my team leader again is like, hey, Billy, get the dog in there. We've got to find this guy. So using the wind to my advantage as a handler is trained to do to best set the dog up for success and him being able to utilize his nose, I, I find out which direction the wind's blowing. Then I go downwind. Um, I send him over a three-foot wall. And in Afghanistan, all of the guards typically have like a two or three foot wall in between each row. So it's kind of row by row by row that are all walled in. So the guy's hiding it about midway down. I send Axe down. I lays the end of the wall uh, where we think he's at. Axe takes off, stops at the end of the wall, and just you can see his head turn. He heard something move. So as soon as he heard something move, he just beelined down there. So as soon as he beelined, hear the guy screaming. So we know the dog's got him. So eliminate that guy, move on. Now we're in an open field, completely exposed to everything, um, and I see a guy hiding behind a compound wall and in between a tree, but he's wearing his, his white man jammies, right? So I can see him bright as day, right? It's a pretty, pretty bright moon out that night. So I tell my team leader, I'm like, hey, you know, Charlie Wan, I got the guy. He's over here, right? So he's like, all right, send the dog, Billy. So I lays the base of the tree and allow the dog to use his nose, right? So Axe goes out there. He's about, again, about 100 yards away. Axe is smelling the base of the tree and then picks up scent, goes around and attacks the guy. Got the guy by the arm. The guy starts running. Uh, he starts running to a room, which we have not cleared yet. And before he even gets there, uh, the room erupts with PKM fire, AK, probably five, six dudes in there. So unloading on us. We have no way of of knowing that those guys were in there until Axe was taken. The, the guy was going over there for protection for himself because he knew the dogs were on him and he didn't know what to do. So acts in his, you know, in his wisdom, basically exposed the enemy force that would have been behind us. We would not have known. So we were laying down, we're taking fire from, from all directions now, tree line, but in front of us, a tree line behind us and then the building in front of us as well. So, you know, rounds are going everywhere. Uh, it's almost like a movie. Things really slow down and you kind of, can see things unfolding in front of you, the fog of war, whatever you may call it. You see things going on. So rounds are going all over the place. My dog is, 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 is on this guy still. And, and in the midst of all this gunfire, I can see through my nods. I could tell the ax got hit. So I couldn't tell where it looked like he got hit in the body, uh, but he wasn't hitting the body. So uh, what, which I ended up finding out later. So when he's hit, I'm telling my my boss, my troop chief, I'm like, hey, dogs hit, dogs hit, dogs hit. He's like, okay, Billy, do an evaluation because we need him. There's a whole bunch of movers out here. We, we need some more stuff. So I'm like, Roger that. So I'm calling him Timmy, and he's stumbling, stumbling, stumbling. And finally, you know, the gunfire is still going on. 
finally, I get covering fire from a, a close friend of mine, Justin Sheffield, who is the author of a book, Mob Six, just recently. And uh, yeah, I know Sheffield. Justin's yeah. giving me cover. Yeah, Justin's giving me cover fire. I run out in this open field, grab axe, and carry him back about a hundred yards to a low wall where Justin meets me and, and is providing cover fire. And during this incident, I'm trying to find out where Axe is hit. Now, like I said, it's negative three degrees. It's cold. Your breath, you can see your breath. You can see the dog's breath. I'm, I'm feeling through his vest, trying to find something cold to feel where he's hit. Because what I saw, it looked like he got hit in the side. The whole time, this Axe is such a stud that he's pulling me to get back in the fight. He wants nothing more than to get in that fight, right? So I have to take him to a small room, which we already cleared, and wait for the PJ, um, the Air Force Special Forces, Special Forces medic, to get over to me. To, uh, to help me with triage. So I start triage on him, but I couldn't hardly do anything. I had to wrap his, I had, I, first again, I'm trying to find the entry wound, nothing on his body. Finally, I, I see smoke coming off the top of his head. So I take off my glove and I start feeling the top of his head and I can feel a little bit of bone and blood coming out of his head. So then I close in my nods and I can see that he was hitting the head. So I radio out to my troop chief saying, hey, dog's hitting the head. Um, you know, there's no way. He's going to be able to go back in, and that's when they sent the PJ to my location. So in the midst of that, I'm trying to wrap up his head and stuff the hole so the no blood comes out and do all this stuff. There's bone fragment in there and everything, so I'm not sure if it's going to get infected or how things were going to happen. Um, but it was hard because he was pulling and pulling and pulling. He wanted to get back out there. It's almost like he was unfazed by it. Finally, the PJ shows up, and I'm like, hey, bro, I need some help. This dog's trying to get out here. He's like, i got to sedate him some. So we gave him a little bit of morphine, number one, to help with the pain, but number two, to sedate him so that we could finish the triage. We did that, and we had to wait another hour uh, for the medevac or the HLZ because it was just such a heavy, heavy firefight that we were in, I think. So Axe that night was credited with finding eight hidden enemy personnel. Um and he really had just basically, you know, saved a lot of the assault force guys to this day. Tell me that, you know, Axe saved the day that night because without Axe, they would have not have known any of those guys were there. So um, we get we finally do get on the bird and we have these, you know, special forces medics on the birds as well. Uh, they start treating Axe as best as they can en route to back to Kandahar because it's like an hour flight. So on the flight, I'm just sitting at the end of the ramp, staring out of the sky, hoping that he's OK. Right. So we finally land. The ambulance comes or whatever, takes us straight to the vet, you know, and, and the vet at this time was just horrendous. She's a horse vet, right? So it's a reserve unit that's at this base. So we bring her in. She's never dealt with trauma. She's never dealt with anything of the sort or with dogs whatsoever. But she, like the Army does, just, you know, activates National Guard members. And you're like, oh, you're a horse vet? We're putting you in the vet clinic as a primary vet. So I get there, uh, you know, and we're telling him, hey, no cameras, none of the stuff. Don't, you know. This dog needs to be treated. What do we need to do? So the dog gets up there. And she's like, I'm going to be honest with you, uh, Billy. I don't I don't know how to do anything with this dog. I've never dealt with the trauma like this. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't know what to do? You're the you're the fucking vet. How do you not know what to do? So me getting irritated, um, she looks at me and says, hey, I can tell you this. His breathing is so rapid that there's he's not going to survive much longer like this because his organs are going to shut down breathing at this rate. So now I'm pissed. At the same time, I'm not only pissed, I'm like, what can I do to help save Axe's life? He just saved our asses. What else can I do to help save him, to give back to that animal that sacrificed his life for his brothers, right? So I run back. We have our own medics uh, in our own specific compound, and they come back with me. 
you know, and one of them's like, hey, let's do this. So he just mixed clenbuterol with oxygen and put it in one mask and put it over Axe's nose. And within 30 seconds, his breathing went back to normal. Wow. And then within 24 hours, he was up and running and playing fetch with me with his Kong and having a good time. He just lost vision in his left eye. Uh, so he was non-operational anymore. We brought him back. Um, and my vet tech uh, retired him out. He lived seven more years as a couch dog. Uh, and the only time he really spun, got spun up was around uh, 4th of July with all the fireworks. He would get spun up. My my buddy had to put him in the backyard because he would run and bounce from one end of the fence to the other because he thought he was back in combat. Wow. So to say dogs don't have PTSD, obviously we know that they do now. But back then people didn't think that they did. But he did. And then um, he lived, like I said, seven more years. And then he died of, of bone cancer. But, yeah, that night alone, I believe to this day. Uh, at any special missions unit is still the most fines for a dog in a single night was eight. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. So you aren't a a medic, but as a dog handler, you train in, um, in being able to treat these dogs if they get wounded, like on the battlefield. Yeah. It's just like we get trained, uh, even as a dog handler and as an operator or whoever you are, you're trained to at least do the initial, uh, triage on an operator if they're down or a support guy if they're down and we specifically practice doing the dog as well because that's my partner right you know i don't have to work and worry about arguing with another person all i have to do is worry about arguing with this dog which is better than anything <laughs> in the world you know what i mean i don't deal with attitude i mean you will deal with some attitude with dogs but i don't have to deal with listening to people and do things i just have to go to work grab my dog and just teach him the best things to keep him alive and help save lives and it's the most rewarding job that I've ever had in my entire life, especially being, you know, at a special operations unit in the Navy and, and being able to utilize a dog in the capacity that they are best utilized with the smartest and the best guys around me. It was the highlight of my entire career. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And it's it's awesome to hear that he survived that. Um... Yeah, strong dog. I mean, he, like I said, he lost vision in his left eye. That's about it. And he retired it out and lived a good life. Yeah, that, that's great to hear that, uh, and and it's unfortunate that um, you know the uh, the vet who was there wasn't able to take care of him. But um, you know, having you know a, a bunch of Navy SEAL medics around, I guess uh, you have guys who think outside the box and were able to to figure out how to you know f- fix that situation. Yeah, it's really the PJs that are the the experts when it comes to the battlefield trauma. That's what they train day and night for um, is is battlefield trauma. That's their primary job. You know what I mean? So those guys, I know I can never thank them enough. And there's a lot of them who are my very, very close friends to this day. Uh, One of the guys named uh, is Dave Keaton, who's retired. He's saved multiple dogs within my squadron um, throughout his career and guys' lives as well. But a great, great PJ. Uh, And I, I couldn't ask for a better medic than than the PJs. Yeah, those guys are fantastic. They had a um I think Nat Geo did a uh a mini series on um a PJ deployment. I forget what year, but it was to Afghanistan and and it was basically I know they attached to different units, but this in this situation it was um them working on like uh medevacs and the I don't know. If, I think it was like five episodes or something like that. And it would just show them going out to different units or even uh, civilians in Afghanistan who were you know, stepped on a mine or something. And, um, you know, those guys are, are pretty solid. Yeah, studs. Just like the CCT, same thing. They're all studs. Right. Air Force guys. Yep. Yeah. 
So yep. if if I can remember correctly, uh, I believe the um, special mission units were the first to deploy canines in combat uh, during the war on terror. Um, are you able to touch on uh, the thinking behind integrating uh, canines within assault force? Before we continue, I'd like to talk to you about today's sponsor. Against the Odds is Wondery's new original series, which walks you through the remarkable events of July 2018 in the Tham Luang Cave Complex in northern Thailand. Twelve teenage boys and their soccer coats were exploring the caves when it began to flood. Completely cut off from the outside world, they were forced to retreat deeper into the cave complex. This set off a chain of events that led to an American Air Force Special Operations search and rescue team arriving to assist with the rescue. The Royal Thai Army Special Forces Regiment and the Royal Thai Navy SEALs had already begun search and rescue operations. Retired Thai Navy SEAL Suman Kunan volunteered to support the rescue efforts. Unfortunately, he died in a cave due to dive complications during the rescue. Rick Stanton, a British civilian diver, is one of the world's most accomplished cave divers and played a vital role in this rescue. I love hearing stories about the human spirit, and I am amazed at the specialists from around the world who dropped everything to go to Thailand and save lives. The courage shown by the special operators who put their lives on the line to rescue these boys is nothing short of remarkable. Against the Odds captures all of this and more. Rest in peace, Thai Navy SEAL Suman Kunan. Against the Odds is available now on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Start your free trial of Wondery Plus and the Wondery app to listen ad-free. With Against the Odds, feel the suspense. Wondery, feel the story. So, you know, prior to them having dogs, they were realizing that, you know, especially in Afghanistan, the war, the, the way Afghanistan was went down uh, was, you know, an unconventional warfare, obviously, but there were so many IEDs. IEDs were such a threat, Afghanistan, Iraq. And it's hard for an EOD tech, even though the guys we have are the best in the fucking world. Uh, they can't see that shit buried, you know what I mean? So to right. have a, a dog that can be out in front of the patrol and not only sense a human being being, you know, two, three hundred yards away in the distance, but can find that bomb. Uh, it, it's really a comforting feeling. Now, we know dogs are never 100 percent. There are stories of dogs stepping on IEDs and guys getting killed, unfortunately, but they're never 100 percent. But it's all about the training you put into them. So. You're right. The teams got rid of dogs after after Vietnam. And I think with the birth of this war and, and the terrorists that we were fighting, we 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 knew that there was an, uh, an something else that we were missing. Uh, and they realized that the conventional units were using them at such a uh, high rate. Like I remember when I was with the Marine Corps, um, the program manager, again, Scott Thompson at the time, would tell me there's such a shortening, a shortage of dogs out there that all units are screaming for them and screaming for them. And then sure enough. Like I said, the Navy Special Mission Unit uh, decided, hey, yeah, it sounds like a good deal. They're seeing how well they're performing with, with conventional units. and We need to look at this and possibly create our own program. We have them in Vietnam. Let's rebirth, let's rebirth that. And that's what they did. So, um, And then over, I think, my nine deployment, ten deployments there, uh, the dogs really, really, really showed how invaluable they are to any assault force, whether it's the army or the Navy. We did a lot of joint training with the army special mission unit as well. Uh, and their kennel as well. So we did a lot of working with them and shared ideas and shared, you know, different techniques and different things that we can do with these dogs on the battlefield. 
as far as climbing over walls or getting into high windows and rappelling and all that fun stuff. You know what I mean? Jumping, everything. So, um, and we were utilizing them so well that then the regular, you know, regular teams and regular army ranger units and green berets decided that they wanted to do the same things as well. Um, so we did help, uh, the, 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 the regular teams create their program. Um, a few guys to include myself, uh, and their head trainer still to this day, Jeff Franklin, uh, really, really took them to a good level. We shared our, our, uh, lessons learned with them, uh, so that they didn't have to go to the same growing pains as we did. Um, and, and it worked out well. So, uh, both programs, both the Navy special mission unit and, and, and the regular teams have great programs to this day. And, and hopefully we don't see them phase out like they did after Vietnam. Yeah. After Vietnam, a lot of things phased out. Uh, I think the, the way they approached it was definitely different from how it's looked at today. Yeah. It's all funding. You know what I mean? Funding, funding, funding programs will get shut down. That's how the government looks at it. If the program isn't being utilized, post-war and they and it's not a major major program they tend to just take money from it little by little and eventually you don't have enough money to sustain the program so you have no choice to shut it down unfortunately right so uh, i know uh dev guru was doing a lot of um deployments to afghanistan and the army special missions guys were spending a lot of time in iraq most of your trips are to afghanistan yeah i had two to iraq and nine to Afghanistan total. Okay, so one of your Iraq trips was with the Marine Corps. With the Marine Corps, yep, exactly. And then my next one um, was with um, the Navy Special with Dev Group into Iraq, and a lot of a lot of work there. A lot, a lot of work because you know you were going out every single night, so sometimes twice a night. So, um, and then you go over to Afghanistan, still going out probably every other night but not as frequently as you did in iraq iraq there was a lot more targets to prosecute than there were in afghanistan but right. to be honest with you targets set in afghanistan was much more gnarly than anything in iraq because in iraq you're like four clicks out walking in easy day flat ground not afghanistan no sir completely different battlefield there uh and you get more legit fighters in afghanistan whether they're chechenians or whoever's is coming in uh, you're getting some legit fighters that actually know how to dig trenches and do L formations on you, uh, you know, and stuff like that. So the, the battle was much harder in Afghanistan just due to the terrain and the fighters you're going against in Iraq. Iraq was, I think, just a bunch of confused uh, extremists that really didn't know what they were fighting for. They just wanted to fight, shoot, right. shoot at people and do fun stuff because a lot of cowards in, in that war. So, um, but Afghanistan, they were they were thugs. They, you know, they didn't they weren't cowards. They dug in and they fought to the to the end. Yeah, that's interesting you brought that up. Um, there was a, a guy, he was a, a, a retired uh, dev guru guy uh, named Bill Rapier. He's he's done a couple of podcasts. And I yeah. was I was watching yeah, one I of his... Yeah, he, I was watching one of his podcasts recently. I, I forgot if... It might have been Andy Stump or... Um, uh, yep. I forget the other one he did, but... Uh, oh, the, the Mike Drop podcast with uh, Mike Ritland. So, yeah, yeah, Mike Ritland, yep. Um, and he, he, he kind of said almost the same exact thing, like... Uh, that the the guys in Afghanistan were were better fighters is was kind of what he was getting at. I mean, he he it wasn't that simple, but uh, that's basically what he was saying. So I wanted to ask, um, were there any or or can you outline some of the differences from working with a dog in Afghanistan versus working with a dog in Iraq? So the only thing that you really have to 
pay attention for in Iraq is there, there was a lot more like crush wire and wired buildings to blow. Obviously, you know, Benny, Benny, uh, I brought to the command a long, long time ago and he was hurt, uh, very bad on his very first deployment. Um, he was blowing up in a house born ID. So that was the only real thing you had to worry about that in the heat. So it was much hotter in Iraq than Afghanistan, even in the summer months, it's much hotter in Iraq than Afghanistan. So you do have to worry about the dog in that aspect, but you're not doing long, long humps in. So you don't really have to worry about him tiring out prior to getting to the target. You know what I mean? But in Afghanistan, you do. You got to realize that, hey, sometimes you're going up in the, you know, up in the Konars, which is 10,000 feet, and you're going up in elevation. That dog is tired just as much as you are. So it's it's worth a second to take 10 or 15 minutes on top of that mountain and let everybody catch their breath and the dog catch their breath before you go into that assault. So the terrain is the biggest difference. And again, the fighters, like you said before, there are a bunch of cowards in Afghanistan in iraq they really didn't know what they were doing there was no real tactical maneuvering on people it was just like the wild west they would just point in an area and shoot uh kind of like you see in africa but afghanistan was legit i mean those guys like i said they you roll up on a target and they'd be in trenches set up on you they they had an understanding and we were there for so long and did persecuted so many targets that eventually they start learning your sops so they know hey that dog's gonna come in this building so they'll you know go into the back of the room and wait and that dog comes in and they just shoot the dog wait for the dog to come in so eventually, you know, you got to change things up because you know that they're going to realize what's going on, how we're doing these targets because we're doing them so frequent and they're sharing information just like we share information. Um, maybe not as technology, te- technologically advanced, but they're still sharing information with each other um, about our tactics and procedures. So, yeah, towards the end of the war, you would get you almost felt like, man, I don't know if I want to send the dog to this. Is it really worth it? Because now we're teaching these local Afghan guys to do things and persecute targets, and they're not really giving it their all. They don't really give two shits about it. I'm like, this is your country. We're here helping you, showing you how to do it, and you're scared to go in there. So – and then they would get in a little tick or something while they were doing theirs, and they would call for the dog. I'm like, I'm really going to send my dog in there with these locals who are already scared more of the dog than they are of their own bad guys. So – you know, dogs aren't really accepted in the Islamic, you know, uh, religion. So they're looked at as a dirty, dirty animal. So dirtier than pigs in their eyes. So it's hard for a handler to be with those units when you're when you're integrated with the local national special operations guys. And they're like, hey, we need a dog. We need a dog. And you're like, eh, I don't know if I want to send my dog in there with you guys because you're more likely to shoot him than the bad guys. So. Towards the end, it got real political and it was real – it was really you know, disheartening to see how we got handcuffed and how we were allowed to uh, you know, persecute targets and things like that. So a lot of guys were very frustrated. Um, vice the beginning, you know, they really didn't know our SOPs and we could do whatever we wanted to send the dog and boom, 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 all day, not all day long finding hidden, hidden guys that were armed and stuff like that. Now, we wouldn't typically send our dog in there if we knew a guy was armed. Obviously, it's a suicide mission, but uh, we would never do that. But – Sometimes you don't know if a guy's armed and they just don't come out and you just send the dog in and he ends up finding a guy and thank and thank God uh, most a high percentage of the time we got there before the dog was hurt. So the you, you mentioned towards the end of your your deployments that uh, some of the politics was kind of uh, affecting, you know, the way you guys were fighting. Uh, was that something that sort of. Uh, led to people leaving or, or guys changing up jobs and stuff like that? Yeah. So a lot of guys would get tired of the political side of that house, and then they would go on and do different things within the command, especially guys that had done already 10, 12 deployments and already put their life at risk so many times. Uh, and then 
putting your life at risk to, to teach these guys to do something which they do not want to do and the possibility of you getting killed because you're teaching someone local to to defend their own country and they don't want to do it, it's kind of asinine. So guys that had done multiple deployments that were pretty beat up and worn out uh, decided, hey, I'll do something else within the command where I don't have to deal with this stuff anymore. So uh, and that was towards the end, yeah, and I think it's still kind of that way now. But it's just you, they handcuffed us so much in regards to how we operate uh, as a unit, um, both the Army Special Mission Unit and the Navy Special Mission Unit. We were kind of handcuffed there towards the end, probably I would say from 2013 on. Uh, pretty difficult and pretty volatile situation, especially in Afghanistan. I mean, Karzai was he was horrendous when it comes to dogs. I mean, the guy didn't want us utilizing dogs whatsoever. So thank God we had guys like McChrystal up there at the time who would fight back and, and try to help us out as much as possible. But um, yeah, it, it, it was a different beast towards the end. Yeah, and, and it's unfortunate, especially like when you look at a guy like Karzai, um, who the, the United States felt like this is the guy who, you know, will lead Afghanistan. And in uh, 2001, helped him get back into the country. And, uh, you know, there was a, uh, a special forces ODA that was basically fighting, you know, their way through. I think they ended up going to, uh, I don't remember if it was Kabul or, or Kandahar, but, um, yeah, they ended up getting him in there. And then, uh, I mean, I guess some of it is he politics. Much. Yeah. I mean, I guess some of it's politics, you know, but either way it's, it's kind of unfortunate, you know, yeah, exactly. So you mentioned Benny Olsen. Um, I've had him on the podcast before. He's a real solid dude. Um, he is, yep. One of my closest friends still. Yeah, he's a good dude. He has a, a company where he's, he's training dogs. I think he's in San Antonio, yep, right? Yeah, San Antonio, Patriot Canine, or Patriot uh, Training, Canine Training, yep. Yep, solid dude. So you um, you met him when you were recruiting him into the into the unit, or...? Actually, I met him when I was stationed in Bahrain, and we, myself and him and another guy we hung out with were pretty much inseparable um, from that time on. I kind of looked at him as a little brother and, and tried to teach him the things that I knew as a handler. He was a brand-new handler in Bahrain. It was his first kennel. Uh, and then when I got to Damnick, we were hurting for handlers because the program was, like I said, ex- exploding. Uh, and I, uh, I had called him and asked him if he'd be interested. He had moved this time to Kingsville. He was at Naval Air Station Kingsville in Texas. And I called him and asked him if he would be willing to come screen, and he was all about it. So, you know, I touched base with his kennel master, worked all the logistics, got him in there, screened, screened positive, and we took him on board, put him through a year of, of training, and then sent him out with the squadron. Yep. Yeah, and he, he did talk about that time where he um where he got blown up and he was wounded. Uh, and, and that was a pretty bad night. I mean, I, I think one guy was killed and a couple other guys were wounded pretty bad. Yep. Yeah, Louis Louis Safant was killed. Yeah, Louis Safant. Yeah. yeah, a couple other guys were injured very bad. So again, that's where you know the dog was an invaluable tool. They were stacked up on a building. I'm sure Benny said, and uh, the guy wasn't coming out, wasn't listening to commands. They sent the dog in, and they don't know really what happened from there. Whether it was a grenade that initiated it, or whether the guy just clacked himself off, but that the whole building went up, and, and Ben and Ben was crushed. Two other guys, I believe, were blown away. Louis was crushed and killed. Um, yeah, and Ben broke both his femurs. I think he broke his wrist and, and, and crushed his uh, socket in his eye. Crazy. And and then he went yeah, uh, he went on to deploy yeah. a bunch of times after that. Yeah, so he had about a year off for recovery. Uh, he did, I think, two or three more deployments. 
Uh, and then physically, I just don't think that he could take it anymore. He was getting a lot of bone spurs from the surgeries and stuff like that that were causing him pain. And, uh, you know, for him and his family, it was in the best interest that he move on with his career. And that's what right. he did. He wouldn't be, became the, the kennel master over at um, Little Creek uh, Naval Base here in, uh, in Virginia Beach. And then he did his last tour there, and then he was medically retired. Nice. So that, that that's a situation um, probably most famously when when the Bin Laden mission was being described either in movies or whatever. And you hear guys say things like, we weren't sure, we thought the house was rigged to blow. Um, because yeah. you guys had experienced that before. Have you ever been in a situation kind of like that or, or where you thought that was a possibility when you were going to Target? Yeah, Iraq was a lot of that, that deployment into Iraq. I mean, the target line that we were hitting, they were all IED, uh, you know, experts. So almost every target we had was wired to blow. So one target I walked up to and I, I, I thought, saw what I thought was crushed wire. Uh, and I radioed to my team and I'm like, hey, I think I see it. I don't think this is natural because the dog had showed a little bit of change. But crushed wire doesn't have explosive and it's explosive to the other side. But the dog was looking down and poking at something. I'm like, what is that? And I looked at it and it looks like string with a knot tied every two or three feet. You know what I mean? And that's typically what crushed wire looks at. So I had called on the comms and told my team later, hey, I think I got crushed wire here. So we halted the patrol. That's just this. This is just one target. There's many targets like this in Iraq. But um they all came and looked at it, and sure enough, it was crushed wire. We followed the wire. It was rigged to the back of the building with a shit ton of explosives uh, and then rigged to a battery somewhere else in another part of the compound that we found through the window. So um, we had, you know, EOD uh, had to disconnect that, and then we did the assault, and then we blew everything up after that when we were leaving Target. But that was almost every night in Iraq. I mean, Benny, again, Benny relieved me. I had just left country, and he went in, and that's when he got hurt. Oh, wow. So another month later, that could have been me. Right. That's that's crazy. So a buddy of mine, he was an operator at the special missions unit, the Army special missions unit. Um, yeah. He was a canine handler for a little bit, uh, I guess, in the beginning of his time there. Uh, and then one of his teammates was killed on an operation in Iraq. And uh, his, his canine partner, she was able to sort of lift the mood in the team compound, you know, after or in between operations. Um uh, she ended up getting killed on that same deployment, the dog. Uh, and then her death was something that affected him for years. Um, are you able to talk to the, the value of the dogs off the battlefield as well? Yeah, so like he mentioned, I mean, that dog is like a piece of home to not only to the handler, but to all the guys in within the assault force. So almost every night, you know, guys like Billy, bring out your dog to the fire pit. And then they would pet him and throw the tennis ball. And he was always around them. So he always knew, or she always knew, depending on what dog I had at the time, uh, always knew that these guys weren't a threat, that they're like her uncles, her or his uncles. So I'm daddy and those are the dog's uncles. So we would be sitting out at the campfire almost every night, dog would be running around playing. I really didn't have to worry about it because all those guys knew the basic commands. I would teach them all the basic commands before deployments, especially the new guys. They knew the commands about the dog. They knew what the dog was capable of doing, but they just loved having a dog around. Like my, my snipers would be like, Billy, bring the dog in with Justin. Bring the dog in the hooch. So I'd go over there and watch a movie with the recce guys, and, and the dog would be running around, laying in front of the TV or watching a movie, chewing on a tennis ball or a Kong. And it's just it makes you feel like you have a part of home with you while you're forward. You know what I mean? So it brings that warmth and that 
that thing, that feeling that you get from any dog. I mean, anybody who's got a pet or a dog as a pet has that feeling when they're around that dog. They bring some kind of an emotional release, and that's why they're such good at therapy for therapy dogs because they do. I mean, they have such a, an emotional release and allow the individual to have that emotional release, whether it's dealing with a friend who was killed in combat or, or dealing with a rough night on target or whatever it may be. There's something about a dog that helps you move on with that stuff and just to have that dog at there out there every night with the guys and just seeing the look on their face to me enough was a rewarding uh experience yeah sheffield uh he's an interesting guy he was um he was part of that hostage rescue in africa successful uh hostage rescue yeah he's one of my uh dear friends i still speak to him today yeah yeah he's a solid dude um so after your deployment, let's go back a little bit. After your deployment to uh, with the Marine Corps, uh, you finished up at Sigonella, and then you went over to Bahrain as a trainer at, at the, the Navy's largest kennel. Can you talk yeah. about that a little bit, what that was like over there? So as a trainer, you kind of have to – there's two shifts in Bahrain because that's the largest – not only largest kennel, but the largest police unit in the Navy. It consists of about 700 military police officers um, just because it's the Middle East. It's a huge, huge department, right? So – there's two shifts. There's, you work 12-hour shifts, three days on, two days off, three days on, two days off. Back then, I don't know what they work now. This is 04 or something like that. So um, as a trainer, I had to flip-flop between the night shift and the day shift to make sure the dogs were getting on odor and getting the training that they need as far as biting. So it, it consisted of about 22 to 23 dogs, I think, at the time. So you weren't, you weren't as a trainer. It was me and another guy. We weren't assigned a specific dog. We weren't assigned, assigned any dog. Our job was to strictly pull the explosive kit or the drug kit for the dogs to put on odor, plant the problems for the handlers, and let them run through it. Or get in the bite suit or sleeve and, and work some bite issues that they'd be having going on or try to develop the dog to the next level at the same time. So you're busy and you learn a lot. Like my buddy Joe told me, at a big kennel like that, you learn a lot because every handler has a different point of view of training. You know, there's 10 million ways to teach a dog to sit. Not one way is right. So it's whatever works for that specific animal. One might work for one dog and it may not work for the same, uh, the same, you know, fix might not work for another dog. And typically they don't because every dog, they're like humans. They have their own personalities, right? So, so you have to be able to be open, humble and listen to, to everybody's input because the, your ha other handlers can teach you, even though you're a trainer, and you may have a more experience than them. They can still teach you that they may have seen something or heard something else along the way that they utilize that you may not have heard of. And you see, hey, that really works. So that's another tool you can put in your toolkit. So I always tell people, if you're a handler and you think you know everything, you're wrong. You're always learning every single day, whether it's from a different animal or from a different handler. You can always learn from from whoever that is. And my, my probably my best friend to this day is a guy named Cale Van Fleet, who uh, is a master chief. Um, in the Navy now. Um, he's a fleet kennel master over here on the East Coast. Uh, he was at the special mission unit with me for about a decade as well. But, you know, me and him go back a long ways and, and uh, we share a lot of the same experiences. But, you know, me and him bounce things off and, off on, off and on with each other all the time. So, like I said, if you, if you think you know everything, you're, you're dead wrong. So you've had a long career uh, handling dogs at the special missions unit. Did you work with multiple different dogs in your time there? Yeah. So in my 
total combined, if you count my my uh, augment deployment back in 0203 and then my other deployments, I think I spent close to a little over 10 years or almost 11 years. So, um, and in that time frame, I probably worked, I think I counted on my hand the other day, I think I worked seven different dogs. So basically what would happen is the, the MA, the military police officer, um, would help the trainers train the dogs to get them to where they need to be. Same with the team guys. The team guys that we had in the kennel would come and train as well. But we would give the, the dogs that were, I don't want to say easier to handle, but were more cut and dry and easily to understand and weren't problem dogs to the team guys just due to the fact that they didn't have the experience on leash that we as the master at arms had. So, And then we would take the troubled dogs, right? So <laughs> you're always dealing with a dog that – I had a great dog in training. I did a whole four-year workup of this dog and uh you know he was phenomenal in every training scenario we put him in phenomenal 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 but as soon as he got on the battlefield he just couldn't do it he couldn't bite and it's because he was confused he just didn't know what to do there was a guy in a building in iraq i sent him in i'm peeking through the window i can see the guy uh he's not armed at the time but we had already sent the dog in so i'm waiting for my dog to find him before we could move in and while he's occupied with the dog we can move in for our safety um and but the dog wouldn't bite he went into a bark and hold. That's what they're taught over in Europe in the sport is a bark and hold when they find people because dog biting is a liability in any police department. So uh, the dog would go revert to what he was confused, didn't know what to do because the guy wasn't wearing a bite suit. He wasn't – he didn't smell like a bite suit. You know what I mean? That's all we trained on. I mean eventually we learned after that to do a lot of hidden sleeves and leather suits uh, and stuff like that to give you a better warm fuzzy before you go out the door. But this dog went into a room, bark and hold, bark and hold, and he just would not bite. So after a couple offs, we had to send him home, and, and I had to get a replacement dog out there who, again, was a stud after that. It was Axe. Uh, it was a stud. Um, no problems biting whatsoever. But um, some dogs do that. You, Like I said, you can have a dog that is just premier in training. You're like, oh, he's going to be a rock star when he gets out on the battlefield, and they just don't. Or you'll have a dog that has two, three deployments. We had a dog like this that was biting regularly on two or three deployments. And then his like last deployment, he just was done, didn't want to do it anymore. Refused to bite. So we had to just get rid of them. I mean, like I said, they're just like humans. They have their own emotions, their own mind. No matter what we tell them to do, eventually they're just not going to want to do it anymore. So, Or they'll just won't stop doing it because they love it so much. But yeah, it, it's definitely difficult. Uh, but working that many dogs, it's hard to because sometimes you'll get a dog and you'll fix it and dog be phenomenal. You pass it on to another handler and then you have to have that separation time. Uh, so the dog loses loyalty to you and gains loyalty to this new handler. So uh, that's tough. It can be really, really tough. But uh, but overall, again, I, I could never take back the experiences uh, and the good times that I had with with all the guys there. Uh, it just, it's it's just I was talking to a buddy today about it. Who's a, Who's a uh, master chief over there, SEAL master chief? And I was telling man, those memories—they just don't go away. Right, I can imagine. Um, so, did you also have dogs that uh, would bite seals, or or you guys? Yeah, every once in a while, you'd have a dog that would get confused and and just bite uh, bite an operator on target and something. Then you had to, you know square the dog away. I mean, Benny had a problem, really bad problem with a dog that had bit multiple operators uh we had to individually get rid of that dog and uh, send him to a police department but yeah the dog was just confused he was an asshole dog wanted to bite anything and everything to move <laughs> and bit two or three op bit two or three operators really bad and uh to the fact that they ended up getting purple hearts for it i mean that bad and then uh that's crazy. unfortunately that dog had to go away because he was just uncontrollable 
So the, the bites we, can we be want, bad. We, like No, no. We want a dirty dog. You know what I mean? We want a dog that we don't have too much control. Because if you put too much control in that animal, then you have problems with the dog veering off from you, being independent. They're Because they're afraid they're going to get shocked or whatever it may be. Uh, so they don't want to leave you as much. So what I mean by dirty is you want a dog that is independent thinker on his own and only needs you to kind of pinpoint him in a certain direction. So, right. Um, but sometimes you'll get a dog like that, that dog I was just talking about that is just an asshole no matter what. And as soon as he got human scent period, he didn't care who it was or what it was. He was biting it. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned how the dog, you had to send a dog to a police department. Is that what usually happens uh, to a dog that's not like wounded on a battlefield? Uh, towards the end of their career, if that's possible, we do that because we don't abuse our dogs like the regular Navy and military do. We don't try to get 14 or 15 years out of them for service. Our dogs go through so much in the special mission units that typically after six years, we try to adopt them out, typically to an operator or a handler, someone that's familiar with. But the dog is still good enough to work and loves working because you got to understand that's what they love doing. Their job is what they love doing. It's not like they're forced to do it. They love doing it. So – and police departments are so underfunded right now that they basically eat dogs from the pound and have to train them up because they just can't get good dogs. So if we, you know, have the ability to to donate a dog to the police department that you know will last a good four or five years and give them a great asset on the streets, that's what we do. We would donate them out to them. Yep. If the dog wasn't adoptable, or if no one won the dog as adoption purposes, then we would yeah eleven forty nine it out to a, a police department, and then they had a great dog for four or five years, and you're only and you're building community relations with that police department as well. So even if, like, let's say a, a dog isn't didn't get you know wounded badly on a target or something, but for whatever reason they're at that threshold where you feel like they need to get you know moved maybe to a PD. Even if there's a situation where you feel like the dog might have lost a step, that step is lost at the level of a special missions unit, and they would still be good enough to to work as a canine at a police department, right? Oh, yeah, by far. I mean, our dogs are cream of the crop. I mean, we're getting the top dogs in Europe every time we go. We'll test 80 dogs. I did a buy trip, I think, in 2013, 2014 over in Europe with our trainers, and we probably tested in three days probably 90 dogs. And out of those 90 dogs, I think we took five home. So that tells you the superiority of those five dogs against the other 90. Right. So if a police department gets their hands on a dog like that, that's like a diamond in the rough because they don't ever get dogs of that caliber. Right, right. So also when you are, you know, you guys are training the dogs. And if, if anyone, you know, listening has dogs or has experience with dogs, you know, you can imagine, you know, someone comes over your house and the dog gets excited and starts barking and jumping around. Or, you know, something happens and the dog gets excited. But uh, just thinking about it, like how difficult it is to get a dog to be on a helicopter or, you know. Or jumping or anything. Yeah, yeah. or flowing through a shoot house with a bunch of, you know. Uh, rounds going off. Yeah, everywhere. rounds, you know, frags and stuff like that. Uh, so is that during that training process, do dogs sort of wash out? Uh, yeah, so let's just say hypothetically. We go screen 90 dogs. Like I said, we bring five back out of those five, maybe two will work out because we will put them through the ringer. As far as our trainers go, they'll put them through the ringer. If it comes to helos, comes to, um, 
you know, environmentals mean meaning different types of flooring because some dogs do not like slick floor. And there were some slick floors in Afghanistan, Iraq, and some of them are tile. And some dogs just aren't comfortable biting people on that kind of unstable surface to them because they're sliding around because they're nails. Uh, but anything like that, gunfire testing, fast roping, we put them through all the ringers pretty quickly. Uh, and if they have problems with it and we can't work through that problem with them, then we'll donate them to a police department. And how about, um, you know, jumping out of airplanes? I mean, that, that, that's so dogs, that's crazy for anybody to do, you know, especially. Yeah, but dogs don't really have depth perception, so they don't really know what's going on. They just feel like they're in a wind tunnel, to be honest with you. So they're muscled. Um, they have O2 if they're doing an O2 jump, so they're muzzled, and then they're put into a, a kit bag that I, I mentioned before, Jimmy Hatch. Jimmy Hatch is the one that designed the first jump bag that we had for our dogs, uh, and it, it's, it's developed tenfold since then. But um, they're put into a flight bag to where they can't move around. They're tied in pretty tight, so you don't have to worry about the dog pulling your you know, your, your shoot ring or whatever like that So because his legs and everything are all confined into that bag. And then he's strapped to you just like you would if you were jumping someone else. So his, his head goes underneath your, you know, your left arm usually, and then he's just enjoying the ride. He doesn't really know what's going on because they don't have good depth perception. That's interesting. That's pretty interesting. So you, you mentioned Jimmy Hatch uh, a couple of times. He, he, um, and this is kind of known. He, uh, he got shot looking for, uh, Bo Bergdahl when he walked off his, his yep. base in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Jimmy's I, a good guy that, that he, but he, you know, I love that guy to death. He, but he, and he's doing so much for dogs now in his post career after the Navy. I mean, I can't, can't stress enough the things that he does for the community, not only work, military working dogs, but mostly police dogs, getting these dogs vests that the police departments can't afford uh, and stuff like that. But yeah, if you, anybody wants to donate to it, it's Spikes Canine Fund uh, at www.spikescaninefund.org. Uh, you know, all the donations are welcome. They all 100% pretty much goes to everything that those dogs need, whether they're street dogs or combat dogs. Uh, you know, Jimmy has started a really, really good uh, foundation there. Yeah, I'll put the links to that in, uh, in the description. So if anyone wants to, to do that, uh, you can just click right, right on through there. Perfect. So, so you have uh, you have eleven deployments, right? Eleven total. Yep. So was there a moment or, or or something that you experienced that resulted in you thinking, "All right, this is it. Like I'm done with combat." I think the birth of my daughter really slowed me down a lot. Before that, you know, I have my son, I have my wife, but I'm still somewhat gung-ho and not really paying attention to every single detail that I'm on the battlefield doing. But then when my daughter was born, it took me a little bit to step back and realize that, you know, not only do I have my daughter that's dependent on you, I have my wife, I have my son that I took for granted the first few deployments and really realizing, I think as you get older and as you get more seasoned, start paying attention that in looking back that all the things that you've been through and luckily made it through physically unscarred but maybe not mentally unscarred um and realize how and then the way the political system was going with the war and everything like that that was really the end for me uh, my goal was to make my, my e9 rank of master chief and i knew that i probably wasn't going to make it staying there as a dog handler um so i left and, and and called the quits and then i made master chief as soon as i left and then moved on to where i'm now as a command master chief um and i'm soon to retire when was your last deployment? 2015. Okay. 
Okay, so you you left the command and you've moved up in, in rank. What's your current job? So I am the senior enlisted advisor for uh, SOCOM's Wounded Care Program. Um, so basically any soft personnel that is injured or, or killed in, in combat, uh, and we work the medevacs that come from Germany to stateside. And then on top of that, we also help all of the special operation guys, whether it's Air Force, Marines, Army, or Navy, when there's, it's time for them to retire. Make sure their stuff's documented in their medical records. If they need you know, mental help, get them in the right facilities. They need physical rehab, get them in the right facilities. And it's fully funded by SOCOM Care Coalition. Uh, and that was my way of giving back to a community that, that treated me so good for so many years, was to give my last two years uh, to, to a great business uh, like Care Coalition is doing and, and advocating for these guys that are, you know, after 20 years of war that are beat to shit and, and to truly give them the, the things to help them get back their lives back on track. Because post-military, uh, believe it or not, is very difficult, especially for guys at, at the tier one level who have been running and gunning for so long uh, and know no different way of life. It's very, very, very difficult. I mean, suicide rates are off the charts. So we try to we try to uh, go above and beyond uh, to make sure that all these guys, whether they're, you know, raiders, whether they're recon, whether they're, you know, rangers, green berets, you know, tier one guys, you know, PJ, CCT, SEALs, combat support. We try to make sure they're all taken care of across the board. And number two, make sure that the families of those wounded soldiers, sailors, sailors and airmen that are coming back from theater can be at the bedside of, of those wounded, you know, veterans. So, um Again, very, very rewarding job. I, I love it. And uh, it's, like I said, the best way to get back to a community that's that's given me so much. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, super important. Uh, I know that, um, you know, after so many years of, of war and deployments, uh, that there was a, a much better effort at helping guys transition out of those, um, you know, those combat roles and, and into civilian life. Um have you had any issues with like TBIs or anything like that you know, over your career? Yeah, I have a TBI. I got knocked out on one target from Danger Close uh, Ordnance. Uh, it was in a valley, real tight valley. We were Danger Close, and, and I got knocked unconscious. So I have, you know, some lesions like Justin does on his brain. Same here, um, you know. And we all, no one wants to admit it, but we all suffer from some sort of PTSD after twenty years of sustained combat. So definitely have PTSD. Um, I'm also a stage three cancer survivor, um, about three years clean, um, this year. So, uh, oh, wow. I've been through a lot mentally or mentally, physically, medically, I've been through a lot and I'm just, you know, thankful to God that I'm still here today for my wife and my kids. Oh, that's awesome, man. I, I didn't even know that about the cancer stuff. Um, yeah, uh, it was a weird thing. I, I'm a big ultra guy. I'd run a hundred mile race down in Florida. Uh, and I, and I had some bleeding, um, afterwards and, um, after that happened, I went, my wife kept pushing me and pushing me to go to medical. So I went to medical and, uh, you know, the doctor said, Hey, it's just polyps. You're good to go. And I'm like, no, it's more than that. And they're like, no, we're not going to give you. I said, I want a colonoscopy. And the doctor was like, he was a young Lieutenant. And he was like, Oh, master chief, we don't give colonoscopies to 30. Uh, I think it was 37. I'm 37 year old master chief. You're just too young. I was like, okay, I'm going to speak to your captain. So the captain came in and I told captain, same thing. I said, Hey, sir, this happened about four years ago. They told me the same thing. I said, I want to call an oscopy. And he was like, okay, Master Chief. And this is where being your own advocate comes in as, as a sailor or a Marine, as a soldier or an airman. So the captain says, Roger that, Master Chief. You want to call an oscopy? We'll give you a call an oscopy. Sure enough, I had a call an oscopy. And I'm in the recovery room. And the captain walks in, white as a ghost, and says, Master Chief, you have cancer. And I'm like, 
and I told you so. And your lieutenant was going to send me off telling me that it was just pull-ups. And I had to educate myself. I didn't know that pull-ups was the very beginning stages of cancer. I didn't know that until um, later on down the road. So if I wouldn't have been my own advocate, my wife wouldn't have been my advocate, um, who knows? I probably wouldn't be here today. I could have got stage four, and it just would have knocked me down. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, yeah, yeah, cancer is, is, is you know horrible for you know uh, for anybody. Um, I, I interviewed. Um, uh, he won the Medal of Honor, Ronald Shore. He's a Special Forces medic, Army Special Forces medic, yep. and um, yeah, he passed away uh, last year. Well. Yeah, we have cancer as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I had three other guys that were at the Special Mission Unit and deployed with me on multiple deployments. We all went through the same type of cancer. It was stage three colon cancer at the same time. And wow. but the military wants to tell us that it's not related to service connected. You know what I mean? But it, that's odd that three guys were at the same place and me at the same time. And we all had it. Yeah, there's a the, for people who have deployed and, and been in combat and, and been on these bases, um, you know, forward operating bases or wherever, a lot of people have come down with cancer and young, young guys. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's actually turning more towards a younger crowd than older people now that are cancer um, survivors. Yeah, the, the, there's a uh, a really good organization that uh, they do f they focus on this a lot. It's called the Hunter Seven Foundation. Um, there are some people that I know who are associated and affiliated with them, um, uh, Army Special Forces guys. But they're, they're shining a light on this, and, and they're doing a lot of research. It's really fascinating stuff, but important as well. Um, I'll have to look at that. You said Hunter Seven. Yeah, Hunter Seven. Yeah, I'll send you their uh, their information. They, um, yeah, do that. There's a guy named uh, Jason Piccolo. He was, uh, I think, he was in the army for a period, and then he also worked at the border at Border Patrol for a while. Um, and he he uh, he's the host of their podcast. It's uh, it's it's brand new. It's called Ground Truth. Uh, definitely worth checking out. And and what they do is they interview. Uh, combat vets who, you know, have experienced something related to, uh, you know, the research that they're conducting. So it's really important stuff. Um, yeah, I'll shoot you their info uh, once we're done here. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, that, you're, you're right. I mean, the health for our, our veterans when they retire, is, it should be priority. But unfortunately, I don't think that it is. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's good to hear that there are programs now that are focusing on that, like like the one you're exactly. involved in, you know. Um, yeah, hundred percent. Because uh, you know, you, you hearing stories about guys who got wounded in like oh five, oh six, oh seven, and uh, were not able to, you know, work at the same level. The, the, their experiences differ from people who are who may experience something similar now, where, where there's more of a process of of you know, helping them transition versus before. But so it, it's good to hear that things are changing now, for sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, awesome. So this was great doing this, and I, I appreciate you coming on here. Um, oh, no problem. Thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. Yeah, for a while I wasn't sure when we were able to do it, you know, due to your some restrictions there. But um, I'm, I'm glad we were able to do this, man. It was cool. Me too. I appreciate it, brother. So is there any way, anywhere... Um, if anyone listening wants to keep up with you, uh, social media or anything like that, where can they go to do that? Uh, I'm not a big social media guy, so not, unfortunately, not really anything. <laughs> okay, okay, no problem. All right, cool. So it was great talking to you, like I said, man, and I, I want to thank you for your service as well. 
Oh, thanks, John. I appreciate it, brother.